I would like to offer a few reflections this morning. And uh, just checking the volume. Are we okay? Can we? Is it clear enough? And also, just like to extend my welcome to those of you who joined this retreat in the last couple of days. And the theme I'd like to reflect upon this morning is to do with what we could call the art of unknowing. We live in a very knowledge-based society, a, a culture in which information is given great importance and to the extent even described as the error of the information age. So much of our education and uh, our early years and beyond, in fact, is devoted to accumulating and manipulating information, learning the skills involved in that, developing the capacity for that. And this is very much based in a belief that real transformative capacity, power and meaning is derived actually from knowing. And yet we could reflect, perhaps as someone observed quite some years ago now, what use is it to know how to put a person on the moon if we do not know how to get on with our neighbours? And I would say equally if we don't know how to get on with ourselves. It's perhaps at the root of it. The spiritual journey runs in many ways counter to the values, the directions and the momentum of ordinary social culture, values and positionings. And in the context of spiritual culture, power and meaning, transformative power that is, and meaning are not derived from, from knowing but to a significant degree from our capacity to, to recognize the unknown and the unknowable, to abide in the condition of unknowing. Chang Tzu, the uh, great Taoist teacher, philosopher, practitioner, he once observed of his own experience, it would seem, I awoke from dreaming of being a butterfly. He said, I awoke from dreaming of being a butterfly. And then I wondered, am I a man who has been dreaming of being a butterfly? Or am I a butterfly dreaming of being a man? And if one just lets that in, that sense of what that might evoke or imply for us. I think it's, it's something rather lovely, perhaps a little unsettling, but also in another way equally delightful. To allow ourselves to be a little less sure of the ground that we establish through the story we tell ourselves about what's happening. Baba Hari Das observed, he said, A dream feels real until you wake up. Life seems real until you awaken. It's not to suggest that life isn't real. It's absolutely real. But not in the way we necessarily conceive, not according to the models that we tend to hold quite closely to in our minds. And we can, I think, very usefully contemplate the question of what is it that we really know? 
What can we really be certain of with this conceiving mind? What knowledge is absolutely reliable? And there's very little, in fact. If we turn to the natural world, if we look at the the world around us, which of course we are a part of, we perhaps have a sense that it's beyond our ability to grasp. The vastness of the night sky, the immensity of the universe is not something we can conceive. We can sort of think about it, we can give it labels, we can describe it with numbers followed by hundreds of zeros, but that's not really it. Scientific and equally religious explanations for the fact that we're here are profoundly limited. And in a sense, although they may have some value, they mostly serve to give us a certain kind of security, a certain kind of something to hold on to. A model, a picture, a story. Stories have their place and they can be powerful and beneficial. But it's also important to remember they're all stories in the end. And when we acknowledge that this is the case, there's, a, I think, a natural humility that comes to us. There's a, if we open to this, if we allow ourselves to acknowledge and to engage with the condition of life that is not just unknown but unknowable, in those terms. There's a sense of both humility and at the same time a, a sense of possibility. There's, a, there's an openness that extends from the very condition of relinquishing our hold upon the stories that we use to explain or define the fact that all of this is here or what it is that's here. And so in practice it's a really useful quality, capacity, orientation we could say, to cultivate, to develop. And to really understand we don't know touches our practice in so many ways if we let it. One of the things that's very obvious is that if we don't know, if we don't orient towards the models, the stories, the pictures that we carry in our mind, immediately paying attention happens. There's no way we're ever going to not pay attention if we allow ourselves to notice that we don't actually know exactly what it is we're standing on. Only the assumption, the illusion that we know allows us to fall asleep quite happily, it seems, some of the time, despite our best intentions otherwise. I was uh, once walking in the mountains in New Zealand with some friends in winter, and we were crossing through an alpine region that's a little challenging in winter, not a regular route involved at one point crossing a frozen lake and as we walked out across the lake testing with ice axes I was leading on this part it seemed pretty good so at a certain point I stopped testing every single step with my axe and about a hundred yards, hundred meters out into the lake from one step on solid ice to the next something just gave way beneath me and I plunged all my body dropped into the freezing water and this is a lake that's hundreds of meters deep in a remote alpine region um, it's really fortunate I didn't go all the way under I think because carrying a heavy pack and uh, we didn't have phones back then that you could use like we do these days GPS's and things I, I caught myself waist deep in the water on the ice and the ice around me cracking and I was thinking that was close but it all happened just like that I didn't go under I managed to gently get myself out as my 
friends also I said just stay back because it's not too good here and we I got out it I mean I could tell a lot about that story it was interesting in all sorts of levels um obviously we made it I'm here to tell the story but I think after I got out of that hole that crack in the ice and the next because it was about another hundred meters of the section we had to cross over this lake so we just kept going I think I did my first walking meditation practice I'd never heard of such a thing before. I'd never done such a thing before. But there was no question that I was going to pay incredibly careful attention to what happened as my foot touched the ground. As my foot came into contact with the first soft layer of slushy ice on the surface that would give way an inch to a couple of centimetres every step. Just a little... uh, And every time I did, my heart would go... uh, Because it could keep going. And it didn't, and it didn't, and it didn't. And When we don't know what we're standing on. When we don't assume it's going to hold our weight, we immediately pay attention. And so too in many other situations. The idea and the illusion that I know what's coming next is really a big part of what allows me to fall asleep. And we discovered after some reflection and analysis of what had happened that there were just in case you're curious, which I don't know if you are, but there was a stream running into the lake, and it was running at quite a high speed, and it actually it seemed like it was cutting a fissure through the, the current running underneath the ice, even that far out. So there was just this one little fault in what was otherwise a pretty solid frozen lake surface. And we were lucky. Well, I was lucky. But I also had stopped paying attention, so that wasn't lucky. That wasn't unlucky. Actually, I was stupid. In one sense. The assumption that what has turned out to be okay will, so far will continue to be so is not an assumption we're entitled to make. One of the interesting things about our urge to know, to find a kind of security and ability to manipulate or control experience through knowing, through information, through accumulating information, is it invites or it evokes for us, and this is why we're very interested in it, this is why our world and our culture has become remarkably good at feeding it to us 24 hours a day, it seems, through any number of different um, devices and sources. promises a certain kind of security, control, and therefore safety. And it's really interesting how often on retreats people report feeling the urge to just check and find out what's going on, because that, they imagine, will make them feel better than not knowing. And the number of times that it's been reported and discussed with me, sometimes at great length and with considerable distress, is how that's not what happened when they got some further information but quite the opposite. (coughs) 24-hour news feeds doesn't lead to a greater degree of ease for us. For most of the world, it seems it's increased anxiety that arises from the information because the urge to seek it comes out of an unease with the basic condition of a human being, that we don't know the future. We can't know it. And seeking reassurance to cover over that vulnerability, that sensitivity, that openness of human existence. If we seek reassurance through information, through certainty, through knowing, the only thing we'll ever encounter in the end is the only certainty we have is our death. There isn't anything else that's for sure that we can really know will come to us. And that doesn't seem to settle that sense of unease, strangely. It doesn't seem to make that place of insecurity feel better. So practice asks, invites, ultimately compels us to consider the possibility of abiding in the truth. with regard to real knowledge, 
with regard to information, conceptual constructs and frameworks, that in the end they are not a refuge for us, they cannot be. And that the effect of endeavouring to or holding on to such constructs, the, in, the attempt to live according to them, is actually really painful for us and frustrating. One of the realms of, or one of the frameworks that underpins the sense of knowledge, of knowing, of certainties in life is the way we quite unconsciously often relate to the sense of time, the perception, the conception and the experience of, of time, which is fundamentally a construct. It's something we've organized ourselves around and we've agreed in certain ways amongst ourselves, but which by our orientation towards it creates the sense that for many the future is more real than the present more important than what's actually happening is what's going to happen and if we try and live our life from this position it's profoundly unsatisfactory as well as unworkable time is based on a sense of duration and duration gives us the, the root of enduring Life is essentially hard work when we're oriented in that way. The struggle, the attempt to grasp hold of experience, to possess or to keep, is based in time. Based in the assumption that our beliefs, our thoughts, our ideas about time are real. And likewise the urge to resist, to get rid of, to push away, is equally founded on the projection of experience and time. The idea that experience changes or equally that experience stays the same are both dependent on the conceiving of time. And outside of that conception there's just now, there's just this. When we're talking about living in the present, when we're speaking about what it means to discover that which is unknowable. We're not speaking about anything revealed in the dimension of time or supported by it. There is only right now and the, the past that we can refer to is not the same as what we remember. Those are just fragments. The past is, in a sense, gone. The holding on through memory, whether conceptual or in the various other structures. And it's not to judge or criticize that we do this, it's natural, it's in fact inevitable. Our body holds structures, just as our psyche, our memory holds structures that represent our way of handling historical experience. But having acknowledged that, having recognized that, we also need to see that it creates a sense of something more real than what is now. And yet whatever is now is the only thing that's real. Admittedly and of course influenced, informed, conditioned by what has been before. But it's gone. It's gone. And the future likewise. It's not our imaginings. You know, what we imagine of the future, what we imagine of later today, it just does not exist. It's not there. It never comes. We know these things. And yet how much of the time we oriented towards that, that sense of movement and time, from here to there, from now to then, 
What are the real effects of that? And one of the really painful impacts of that whole orientation and process is the, the way in which time therefore creates a basis for comparison and measurement. All forms of comparison, again, are, me- are involved in measuring. Measuring is one of the ways we organise information. The concepts of time, the concepts of anything we measure, in fact, lead us into a really painful, often deeply distressing condition if we don't consider them, if we don't reflect upon them carefully. So much the wish to develop, to cultivate, to deepen. Valid as all those orientations are, is somehow held within a framework of attempting to measure ourself as somehow okay or valid. Whether we are wishing to develop concentration, loving kindness, insight, wonderful things indeed, precious, beautiful, powerful. But the sense of me trying to get this or become more in time through this. It doesn't ever come to an end. We never get to the point where it's enough. And we in that process of measuring and comparing based on something we can quantify and the idea we can compare against a different time we quantified it and either I'm getting better or getting worse or staying the same all of these are conceits better than, worse than, the same than in the Buddha's teaching these are all conceits they are all forms of measuring and comparing And they're not ultimately sustainable. And so the the conceiving, the conceptual, the story, the framework we tend to hold, that we don't necessarily question too deeply, because it can be unsettling, it gives us a sense of who we are, the sense of past and future, the conceiving in those terms gives us a sense of who we are, who we will be, who we were. But if we turn to the immediacy of our experience outside of that, outside of conceiving, outside of labelling, outside of describing, outside of comparing, we find the present is always something fluid, something unfixed, something undefinable, ungraspable. There is no basis in it for self-definition, for fixity of identity, for something ultimately solid or reliable. And this is kind of scary. This is kind of unsettling. This is why it's not easy to abide in a condition that is not being held or supported by some degree of attachment or identification to conceiving, to conceptual positions and views. Of course we can use them, and we do use them. None of what I have to reflect upon right now would make any sense to you without some ability to use conceptual material. 
and yet to look at, to notice, to allow ourselves to feel into what it might be to not hold on to any of that. It's kind of scary in one sense. And understandably scary to that in, us, that in us which seeks for security, for certainty, for fixity, for reliability. And one of the curious and it seems kind of tragic things we can notice in, in ourselves is that it's so uncomfortable to not know who we are, to not be able to define a sense of what this is to be in some satisfactory conceptual framework that's actually sustainable. We tend to end up picking up something negative or critical. Actually, a negative self-view is more comfortable than none at all. And so we often find ourselves moving between trying to establish something that feels positive, at the same time being quite clearly aware that we can't refute something that appears negative. And so much of the time, it seems, at least in our culture and maybe in others too, somehow a holding on to a, a self-view, a conceiving of self as somehow deficient, lacking, failing, not okay. And what would it be if we just didn't know? If we didn't say, if we couldn't say, if we couldn't make any conclusion about all of this? What might that offer to us? It's not having to argue with and refute all the views, the positions, the understandings we might have. And of course useful and valuable to have self-knowledge, self-awareness about our patterns, our tendencies, our histories, our journey, the sense of that which we need to cultivate and that which we need to let go of. Of course, that has its place. But none of that tells us who we are or what we are. if we were to allow ourselves to be uncertain about this, or perhaps even more than uncertain, to really consider or to explore what it might mean to abide and really not knowing, to really not know what it is that this is that we call me or that you call you, that we call this, It doesn't disappear, interestingly. It doesn't suddenly sort of burst and go away when we stop conceiving it in that way. Or it's not so much stop conceiving it, but actually kind of name the way we orient towards the conceptions as if they represent something real or ultimate, rather than simply being a, a format that we can engage with. What comes, I think, naturally, inevitably, and quite unstoppably is a, is a very different relationship. A little bit like the experience of if we don't know what we're putting our foot on, we're going to pay attention to it. Walking meditation happens naturally when walking on thin ice. And we're walking on thin ice, this whole existence. But likewise with regard to what we could call life, beings, ourselves. I once went to a, I'm not sure if it was a party or a gathering or some sort of thing, and there was someone there who, in the perception I had at the time, was quite important, who I'd really quite like to meet, and I didn't have a clue what they looked like. And this was long before you could Google someone and get a picture of them. It was actually a uh, I guess it was some sort of a party sort of thing. Um, and I knew Helen Torkov was going to be there who was the editor of Tricycle, and someone I was interested to meet. And of course there's a hundred people in the room. And I had a very interesting experience of walking in, and what I discovered, and it was actually quite lovely. I didn't actually meet this person, as far as I can tell. 
But what I noticed is I went in and at least all the women, I looked at them and there was a few I knew, so then that was different. But all the women I didn't know in that room, for whom there were many, there was this sense of, wow, this could be that person. And I noticed this profound sense of interest, respect, and a sort of like kind of honoring quality just arising, just on the chance that this might be the person. Now, it's not that, you know, she's some kind of luminary superstar. It's not like meeting the Dalai Lama, but it was really, which I haven't done, but so maybe it would have been, I don't know. But, um, but just really interesting to see if one, if one doesn't know how that changes us. What would it be to meet ourselves? To meet what is here as if we were this remarkable, important, and respected being who but we weren't quite sure who that was yet. Something really beautiful opens up in the territory of unknowing. In the, and I, I say unknowing because it's not just not knowing. Unknowing expresses the active principle. It's not a passive condition. The active principle whereby we become aware of our tendency to create, which is fine, and believe in absolutely, which is not so useful, conceptual models, ideas, pictures, definitions, stories. Becoming aware of the fact that we're doing that with them gives us some space with them. And that's the process of unknowing. The knowledge doesn't go away, but we hold it differently. And we're not held by it. We're not looking for it to hold us. And we're inviting ourselves to discover what more fundamentally we are held in. But it's not easy for us. Our mind, our world, our culture, so much seeking for security. And so so much a sense of unease with the unknown, with unknowing, with not knowing. So much a sense of scary is the response. It's really good to get to know what that feels like for us. Because although it might be scary, it's not dangerous. It's not dangerous. It tells us we need to pay attention, but it's not dangerous. And yet, somehow it's compelling to create that sense of uh, this is how it is, absolutely. Voltaire once observed, he said, Uncertainty is indeed an uncomfortable condition. But certainty, certainty is ridiculous. And yet it's compelling for us. When we see the unfamiliar, we tend to err towards assuming it's dangerous. And therefore we want to know. Have you ever had that experience at Guy House and there's the birds going rat, 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 and the mind starts wanting to know what kind of bird they are? My mind does. It's like, is that a crow? Is that a rook? Just a moment. No, aren't there those other ones? Are there, no, it's not ravens. What are those other blackbirds that you get? You know, jay, jackdaws. Um, and that sense of kind of not quite being able to rest until we know, is it a crow? Or I think they're rooks. Some people are you nodding, others of you are laughing because perhaps you've been wondering. I could be wrong, and um, that's quite possible. I think they're probably rooks. But what's more interesting is that the urge, and, the, and then the sense of, oh, phew, if, people not, if everyone shook their head when I'd said that, it would be like, oops, I still haven't got that one worked out. And you know if you had that experience walking along, seeing a, um, a baby in a pram, 
and being transfixed by if their parents have been sufficiently unconventional not to identify it with bright blue or bright yellow or bright, actually yellow would confuse you, and a bright blue or bright pink sort of things to say this is a boy, this is a girl. Of course, we know it's not necessarily quite that binary now. Um, But nonetheless, at a certain level, and it's been documented, people get really frustrated if they can't tell. And it will often be the first thing they ask. Not, is this being well, what a lovely being, but is it a boy or a girl? Because until then, I don't know how to relate. And I don't feel comfortable. That, That bit isn't articulated. And again, it's a very common and socially recognized and even studied phenomena where it's the process of actually being able to establish a clear conceptual framework that tells me who I am, who they are, and then my whole relationship to it is, con- is configured by that. And that has a function. It has a value. It's okay. But it's just a really useful illustration of how we can be so uncomfortable, so uncomfortable when we don't know. And we hold on to the certainties we have, the knowing, the positioning that we have so much, so deeply. And I had a, I guess what would have to be described as a salutary lesson in regard to this. Uh, some years ago I was teaching in, um, in Australia in Wat Buddha Dhamma, a uh, sort of a simple monastery and retreat centre as it is now rather than a monastery um, in the, uh, the Daruch National Park in New South Wales, Australia. And I'd arrived the day before the retreat uh, to give myself a little time just to land and sort of catch up with myself after the long journey. And so I thought I'd go out for a walk. And it was rather, rather lovely to go walking. I've never been in this particular kind of environment in the Australian rainforest. And uh, I'm quite experienced in the, in the woods and the outdoors, so pretty comfortable. Walking, it was really warm. I was just wearing a pair of shorts and a, a vest or singlet, as we would call it in New Zealand, um, Australia. And at a certain point, I saw this because um, it was quite dense, and you couldn't really get a view. And I wanted to get a view, so I was getting sort of looking. Where can I see? I want to see what's around. And I saw what looked like a route up onto a hill where I thought I'd get a view from up there. So I left the track, and I followed this sort of route way up onto the top of the hill. And at the top of the hill, I still couldn't see very much because there were trees all around. So I went back down to rejoin the path. And after 10 or 15 minutes, I thought, oh, I haven't found the path. And I thought, oh, I think I only went up for about 10 minutes, but maybe it was a bit further down. It's a bit further down. Didn't find it. Oh, where's the path? Went back up the hill to the top. That's what you do. This is what you learn if you get lost. Go back to the last place you knew where you were. I wasn't lost though, I was quite sure I knew where the path was. I went back up to the top and it was down there, went back down. wasn't there. went even further. Maybe, I went long, maybe it was longer. But I know where the path is, it's just down there. I went down, up and down. Six, six, seven times I went up and down. Didn't find the path. It started to get dark. I started to think, hmm, this is actually not so good. And it was getting dark and I wasn't worried that it was going to get cold because it was Australia in February, but even though I had you know, very little on. But I was a little bit concerned about the fact that there are snakes and scorpions and spiders crawling all over that place. And uh, I was sort of thinking, okay, I'm going to have to stay out the night. It'll be all right. Started gathering some, some leaves into a pile. And the interesting thing was that all along I said, you know, when, the, when it's light in the morning, I know the path's just down there. I'll go down there and find the path because the path's just down there. And then as I was doing this, at some point, suddenly the moon shone through the clouds, and I was contemplating, and, and suddenly it struck me, because I was, you know, just getting ready for what was going to probably be an uncomfortable night, it suddenly struck me, you don't know where the path is. And it struck me with the force of a thunderbolt that went right through my whole system. And I can still feel the resonance of it when I speak of it. Because in that moment, I was terrified and my mind flooded with, oh my gosh, you're lost in the middle of the Australian wilderness. Nobody knows you're here. You haven't told anybody. You're going to die. And that went through me like a, like a thunderbolt. And then in the next moment, it was like, ah, oh, yeah, that's actually the reality. I don't know where the path is. But I do know where it's not. Which is, it's not down there in the place where I've been looking for it. Because I've been up and down six or seven times. 
And at that point, I thought, something in me settled. Oh, okay, I don't know where the path is, but I do know where it's not. So I thought, okay, somehow I've managed to fool myself here. And so I know where it's not. I'm at the top of a hill. There's 360 degrees. I'll just go, you know, 20 degrees to the left, down the path to where I know it's not, but it might be. Down the hill, sorry, not down the path. And if it's not down there, I'll come back up to the top and I'll do it another 20 degrees and I'll just keep going around until I find out somehow I've got completely disoriented up here. And it had terrified me in the moment of letting it in. But afterwards, it was like very clear, that's what I need to do. The moon brightened. I broke a a branch off a tree, a dead tree nearby as a stick because it was quite steep and there was no path. And I went down just 20 degrees. I don't know if it was 20, 25 degrees. It's just a little bit round from the angle I'd kept going down that I was sure I knew where the path was. I went down. Ten minutes later, there was the path. I was scratched a bit, so I was covered in soot because there'd been a fire through there the year before. I'm really fortunate I didn't bump into anyone. And I'd had all these thoughts about, gosh, that's going to happen when they, you know, start the retreat and I'm not there. Somewhere lost up on the hill. It'll be that long before they come to find me. Went back in. Had a shower. Went to bed. It was about midnight. And I contemplated what had happened to me. And I do on regular occasions, often when I'm talking about like this. I could not find my way up there because I was holding on to the only security I had, which was my belief that I knew where the path was. This is not an accidental metaphor. And I actually had to let go of that security in order to free up the possibility of exploring. And in doing so, actually the path revealed itself pretty quickly. I was trapped in that place by my attachment to the certainty that gave me a sense of, it's okay, I know where I am, I know where the path is. And that was not true. I didn't know where I was, I didn't know where the path was. And so long as I defended myself against that fear, or the fear that would evoke of acknowledging that, I was trapped, I was caught, I was stuck. And to a large extent, that is the dilemma of the self. So much is inexplicable. So much. We tend to gloss it over. Coincidence. Accident. Happenings. Perhaps the most uh, significant meetings in my life have happened in ways that I just cannot understand how they've come to be. I was first practicing in Asia. I travelled to, um, after having done some retreats, I travelled to travelled to Calcutta to to meet because I'd never met before my grandmother, who's Bengali, and uh, it was rather lovely. Go and knock on the door and meet this, as she was then, seventy-year-old uh, uh, Indian woman who was my grandmother. And while I was in Calcutta, I'd heard that there was a teacher I'd like to meet. Well, there was a teacher I'd heard of that I wanted to meet. And I, I went to the place, his name was Manindra, and I went to the place where he was supposed to be staying. And I was told he's not there and he doesn't ever tell anyone where he is or what he's doing, so come back again, try later. Um, and in the interim, I, I went, I, I did, and he wasn't there. And I, I went along to a, a retreat taught by another teacher, Goenka, tradition um, retreat and uh, there was this guy in white sitting at the front didn't say anything, didn't do anything he said hello to me at the beginning seemed friendly, that was nice, didn't think anything of it at the end of the retreat he came up to me and he said come and see me and I have to confess he handed me a card and my thought was why would I want to come and see you 
And then I looked at the card. It said Manindra. I might not be sitting here if he hadn't come to find me when I was trying to find him and couldn't. How could that happen? He'd never heard of me. I'd heard of him. Contemplating the inexplicable is actually a really helpful practice. I mean, our existence is inexplicable, to be honest. We don't need to have kind of curious encounters with teachers to have such things pointed out to us. It requires a real courage, a real trust in life itself to be willing to be open to its most profound teaching. So far as we find within ourselves that capacity, that which may have appeared to be scary to us, is actually a medium in which we find ourselves buoyant. That which we may have feared falling into is a condition in which we find ourselves uplifted, floating, we could say. I was once given a card by the uh, staff at Insight Meditation Society when I finished my time there as resident teacher about 20 years ago. And it said, could we tell the difference between falling and flying if there was no ground? It's already happening. Another teacher I was very fortunate to meet in my early years of practice in India was Ajahn Sachito, who was when I was uh, on retreat in Budgaya, on occasion he came to visit his English um, monk who has been for many years abbot of Chithurst Monastery, Chittavaveka, and is now retired as abbot but still uh, teaching. And he, he gave a wonderful talk of which a, uh, a section I actually uh, transcribed and I'd like to share on this theme. It's also, uh, there's a a couple of books he wrote um, describing the pilgrimage he was on at the time and they've actually quoted this in it which is interesting um, but I'd like to finish on this theme with uh, his words from Ajahn which means teacher he says there is no real learning on the intellectual level there is only a kind of learning that we do when we have the humility to recognize that really the learning part is when we go to the edge of where we know and where we control. And the nobility of our life, the nobility of our purpose, the aspiration of our life says, keep going. Past the area where you can't control it anymore. And trust. For me, this is the heart of devotion, of faith, of surrender. Not a surrender of responsibility, but a profound recognition of what the responsibility of this being is. To live in accordance with truth to honour truth and to trust the truth of our life as it is. What lies beyond me and control and the sense of self is the joy of the deathless, the joy of the boundless, the mysterious vastness of life. So let's just sit together quietly a few moments to finish.
So may we all in our practice here and in our lives, may we deepen in the art of unknowing. May we grow in our trust of life, in our willingness to abide in its immediacy. its vast openness. The groundless ground that is. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.